Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and Corridor Aesthetics.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. My guest for the first portion of our program is Michael Barbaro, host of The Daily from the New York Times. The Daily is broadcast here on IPR weekdays at 6 p.m. It's a wildly popular podcast, downloaded by several million listeners each day across the country, around the world, the winner of numerous awards. Michael Barbaro is coming to Iowa next week. Wednesday, March 8th, to speak at the Iowa Memorial Union at 7.30 in the evening. It's free. No tickets are required. First come, first seating. I spoke with Michael Barbaro earlier today. Ben. Hey, Michael. This is Ben in Iowa. How are you doing this morning? I'm wonderful. How about you? I'm really good. I'm, I'm really glad good. to hear that. And let's get to it. I understand you have a packed schedule. Thank you for making time for us. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Before we get into the, the thick of it, I'll just say, uh, when you think of Iowa, I assume the first two things you may think of are corn and caucuses. You may correct me. <laughs> but I want... I want to I, ask actually, you, you know what you know what I think about. I think about the most beautiful <laughs> downtown in the Midwest. Which downtown is that? Because we have I'm several. Thinking of, beautiful. Tr- I'm thinking of Des Moines. I mean, I, I have such yeah. affection for Des Moines. I've watched it change. I've watched a kind of cafe culture arrive in it, and uh, and I love the sculpture and the park, and yes. I love the intricate, wacky, vestigial, you know, tunnel above ground, you know connecting bridge system which at first really threw me but then i came to love i love it all yeah we're going to dish this off to the iowa department of tourism you sound like you are intimately acquainted with our capital i have a lot of affection for it thank you for coming on what well, it's my pleasure let's let's talk a little bit about the daily um sure because you our host of the daily, uh, and now you have a co-host uh, for a year or two, mm-hmm. and um, it's broadcast here on IPR weekdays at six p.m. in the evening. Wildly popular podcast, downloaded by how many million listeners each day? Do you think about two and a half million in podcasts? And when you add in all the radio, I think we're you know we're getting up into the you know three million plus. Hmm. Amazing. Now, this was launched at the dawn of the Trump presidency, 2017. And in that year, Apple Podcasts uh, ranked it as the most downloaded new show of 2017, winner of numerous journalism awards. I want to ask you, uh, what do you feel is unique about The Daily that made it skyrocket, made it so successful so quickly? It's a good question. I I think there are several reasons. I think the first one does relate to that name you used when you described the the era in which the show was born, which was it was it was the beginning of the Trump era in American political and civic life, which as you'll remember was dramatic, 
and confusing and really different. And I think it raised so many questions for people. And our show literally arrived more or less day one in that era. And we saw our mission is explaining how did we get here? What does it mean to have this person as our president? And so that's the the starting point. We have a ton of people looking for answers and we see ourselves as helping to provide those answers. The second thing is the format. You know, a lot of news shows out there, they start with headlines, which makes sense. And they might have a couple of segments that are four or five minutes telling the news in a slightly longer form. We decided we were going to tell one story a day, which gave us a huge amount of freedom to experiment with formats and music and historical archived reel. It allowed us to go into tremendous amounts of depth with the story, which I think was new for people. And I think Mm -hmm. the final element is that we had the entire New York Times news organization as our resource, you know, 1,200 reporters writing stories, recording their interviews, and being very open to experimentation. And so put those things together, and and to our own, frankly, shock, you know, (laughs) the the show was a hit, and, and people were listening to it in really large numbers. Yeah. And is this what you mean by, I've heard you say you wanted to change, you and your team wanted to change the relationship between the consumer of news and the presentation of news. Is that what you mean? Well, that's a a very specific goal that I think the show meets. And what I mean by that is if you read the New York Times or most newspapers, you have a pretty disconnected relationship to the person telling you the story. They're this kind of black byline at the top of the article. They're not really talking to you. And I think what The Daily does by spending 25 or 30 minutes with one person telling you a story is it changes your relationship to the person telling you the story. I think it develops Mm -hmm. more trust in that relationship at a moment where there's not a lot of trust in the media. Uh, And it gives you a real sense of kind of how that journalism even came to be. And therefore, I think it increases your faith in what it is you're consuming. Yeah. It reminds me a lot. I lived in Europe for a good number of years. And on the BBC, one of my favorite shows was The Reporter's Notebook, where right. exactly as you said, you, you know you know the segment, I'm sure, where, where you don't just hear what's being reported with this so-called obje- objectivity, but right. you get to hear what the reporter's thinking. And that's what you're doing. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes we like to say that the most powerful moments on the daily are when a journalist acknowledges uncertainty or you hear them grasping for what it is the story really means versus kind of pretending in that stentorian, you know, kind of traditional broadcast voice that they're an authority. I mean, I think if we've learned anything in the Trump era, it's that none of us are really authorities on all that much, right? We didn't understand who was going to win that election, despite the the certainty we all projected about, you know, a potential Hillary Clinton victory, many in the media. Polls were wrong. And I think, you know, it's been humbling. And instead of sort of being defensive about the fact that, journalism is in a moment of kind of reckoning around what it is exactly we know and don't know, the show was able to embrace that. If you just joined us, my guest uh, for this portion of the program, Michael Barbaro, host of The Daily from The New York Times. You've spoken uh, about, uh, you've been interviewed about um, uh, Donald Trump, um, that era when the Daily came to uh, rise. Uh, He won in 2016, and you've as a political reporter, also expressed surprise uh, that he won the presidency, mm-hmm. having covered him for the Times. Why do you think so many reporters had that disconnect, you and others who knew the most about Donald Trump uh, that that any of us did? 
Well, I think the flaw that I committed, at least, I'll just speak for myself, is yes, I understood Donald Trump as a candidate, but I didn't understand the electorate. And that is <laughs> that is a pretty significant sin as a journalist. You know, the reality was that you could understand Donald Trump as a businessman in New York who was seen as bombastic, who was seen as someone whose accomplishments were not entirely in line with the way he spoke of them. You could see the unpaid bills to contractors. You could see the lawsuits and the debts and the bankruptcies. And you could think one thing. And if you weren't paying enough attention to how powerfully he was connecting with voters, which which we did and I did too, but I think it was easy to use the experience of watching him, talking to him, experiencing him in a place like New York and and sort of just fail to compute that people outside of New York and outside the Northeast and outside all the coasts were just seeing him in a fundamentally different way. And also they were experiencing something that he turned out to be uniquely powerful at addressing, which was a set of discomforts and grievances and aspirations that no other candidate had figured out how to deal with the way he did. Yeah. And, and that giving the shorthand that I've heard that makes sense is giving the, the middle finger to a, a lot of segments, elite segments in our society. And that's attractive. Yeah. And that's really that's really powerful. Now, those of us who know Donald Trump know that um, he wasn't giving the middle finger to elite segments of, of society or, or the media. He was courting the media and he loved talking to the media. And there was always this kind of irony slash confusion uh, over the dynamic of him suddenly being the guy who hated the media or said that they were the enemy of the people, which was his phrase, because the minute you called his office, he picked up the phone and loved talking to journalists. And that was always the case. I found it myself when I was a reporter covering New York City. And so it, it, it was a surprise when he decided to oppose the media. And to some degree, it felt like an opportunistic decision and not necessarily how he felt about the media. Michael, you have a, a wonderful story about being with Donald Trump way before he was a candidate in 2011 when you were a political reporter for the Times. And uh, I wonder if you could recount that. This is, this is, this is a tr uh, Donald Trump making a comment on the way he thought about same-sex marriage, um, <laughs> comparing it to golf. Do you know the story I mean? I do, and you're bringing me back to Las Vegas in 2011 when I was in Donald Trump's suite. And I have to say, I found the whole experience very disarming. Here was a guy who more or less answered his own door in his giant multi-room suite atop this gilded hotel on the Las Vegas Strip with his name out front. And I walked in and, you know, turned out his wife, Melania, was was in the shower and he said, you know, she had a bathroom. It was a very oddly intimate experience. She came out and said hello and then <laughs> went away. Um, and then we start we sat down and we started talking, just the two of us. And I asked him about all kinds of things. And I asked him, of course, about same sex marriage, which uh, was a prominent subject of the day. And he compared it to his discomfort with the new kind of putter that was making its way around the golf world. You may you know, you may know it if you watch professional golf. It's the one where you kind of it's very tall and it kind of comes up under your arm and you, you awkwardly hold it and it's a different stroke. Anyway, it was a very <laughs> strange and innovative metaphor for how to think about 
sexuality and, and same-sex marriage and comfort with it. Uh, it definitely was something he found relatable as a golfer. <laughs> but when we put it in the paper, uh, I think people people were a little bit thrown by it and and uh, and and surprised and some were alarmed. But but, you know, I, I think it does sum up his incredibly unique approach to, to everything and, and, and kind of a, I don't really give a damn, you know, about political correctness or, or about how it might sound to those who have very sensitive ears. We're going to take a short break and then get back to my conversation with Michael Barbaro, host of The Daily. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. This season, Garden Variety wants to help you flourish. Each week, our favorite horticulturists drop by with fresh tips. Subscribe and dig in. Head to ipr.org garden or find Garden Variety wherever you get your podcasts. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Let's get back now to my conversation with Michael Barbaro, host of The Daily from The New York Times. Most of us have experienced Donald Trump from afar. I've been to a a Trump rally, experienced Mm -hmm. that, and that is quite an experience. But most listening have experienced uh, Donald Trump via a screen of some sort. So you've experienced him, uh, as you recount, in 2011 in Las Vegas, in the room. What is the difference you can sense between being in the room with him, his personal manner, and the way he is covered by the media that is has a definite appeal as well. Well, that's a really incisive question. And I think when you're with Donald Trump in a room, and this is true almost of any in-person encounter versus on stage or on TV, there's a there's a humanity and there's a vulnerability. There's a person kind of trying to please, which is what I found in in being in a room with him. And I found that when I interviewed him in his office, and I don't want to make myself out to be some sort of you know, frequent guest of Donald Trump, but I, but I've interviewed him in a number of formats, including his office. And, you know, he, he has a very, he has a gracious manner. He aims to please. Um, He's a nimble conversationalist. He, he wants to, you know, he wants you to have a good time in his presence. And it's different than the guy who goes on stage and is, seems sort of so invested in firing up a crowd that you get you know, you get you get something that more frequently resembles, you know, bombast and rhetoric, and and it's not a kind of intimate feeling experience. And and so I think that that disconnect, you know, sums up what it means to be a performer. That's his shtick. That's his shtick. And I, but I think there is a Donald Trump who doesn't have a shtick. There's a Donald Trump, you know, who just sits there and across the table and and sort of you know is willing to have a, a conversation. But there are some similarities. I mean, you know. One of the similarities is, you know, and I don't say this pejoratively, but it's vanity. I mean, to be in his presence in a small environment is to immediately experience someone who wants you to understand that he's important. He wants you to see the covers of him on magazines. They are on his desk. They are framed behind him in his office. You know, he wants to talk about moments where he mattered. You know, this is someone very, very invested in his status and stature in the world. Mm-hmm. I wanted to switch a topic to transgender rights, the transgender community. 
generating a lot of controversy, as you know, and you've been covering with your team at the New York Times across the country, also here in our state of Iowa. In fact, Michael, just yesterday, uh, students in about three dozen schools across Iowa walked out of their classrooms. Uh, They were decrying the growing list of bills introduced in our state Mm. legislature that target the LGBTQ people here, and particularly transgender students. Um, For instance, bills requiring teachers to inform parents uh, about students asking to use different pronouns in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, there's been raised by, you know, some Republican uh, lawmakers uh, a bill to eliminate same-sex marriage in Iowa. Um, Governor Kim Reynolds uh, has a bill banning discussion of gender identity in Iowa schools, restricting access to some books with sexually explicit content. But I wanted to get into criticisms of reporting on the transgender community as they touch the New York Times. Uh, Some 200 New York Times contributors signed a letter to the Times criticizing the Times reporting on the transgender community. And here's an excerpt from the letter. I'd like to have you react to it. The Times has in recent years treated gender diversity with an eerily familiar mix of pseudoscience and euphemistic charged language while publishing reporting on trans children that omits relevant information about its sources. Um, Now, the union leadership backed the protests, according Mm -hmm. to what I've read here. Um, The coverage of uh, on the transgender issue. Um, What is your reaction to this criticism? And I understand it may not be the official reaction of the Times that you give us. Well, I actually would point you to the official reaction to the Times, which is that the paper is really invested in covering this issue because it's hugely important. It's the subject of a large debate happening in the country, really important science. And as you just pointed out, legislation in places like Iowa, legislation beyond Iowa in many states around the country. And the way we do that is through rigorous reporting and a generous spirit of curiosity. And I I use those words deliberately because I think what's happening in this debate is it's become very polarizing. And when debates become polarizing, activists and advocates on both sides like to carve out space for themselves and say that something is not debatable and shouldn't be touched. And, you know, personally, I think the role of journalists, and I think I speak on behalf of many of my colleagues, is to remain curious and generous and empathetic and to make sure there's a space for uncertainty and to report in those spaces of uncertainty and not accept necessarily someone saying uh, that a debate is settled uh, on either side, right? I mean, that, and that's the history of, of great journalism, whether it's about politics or science, is to keep asking, what do we know? What do we not know? If we know something, we absolutely must say it is settled. Um, but if it's not settled, we need to apply the same rigor to it that we would, you know, whether it's about uh, people in power, our military, or sexuality. Yeah. 
I wonder where you think we are in terms of uh, grappling with the transgender identity, with all the controversy. If, for instance, we can remember years ago when same-sex relationships were highly controversial, certainly more controversial than today. I have to say here, uh, you you probably know this, but Iowa, one of the first uh, one of the first states to uh, legalize same-sex marriage before mm-hmm. uh, the Supreme Court uh, ruling, and so uh, many in Iowa very very proud of that. But I wonder. The question is: Is the transgender identity and relationship? It, it, transgender identity question and the controversy walking the same path that you know same-sex relationships did to what extent are those the same do you see those in, in covering them well i my vantage point is that i covered same-sex marriage as a as an issue specifically in new york where it was being debated as a law much as it was i believe in iowa where the legislature correct me if i'm wrong got involved in right is that correct in in passing it in right you know, the, so the, the in, Iowa legislature banned same sex marriages and then the, the Iowa Supreme Court overruled that unanimously and uh, the three judges were were thrown out were thrown out in retention votes as a result in 2010 yeah right yeah and there were you know this the story of the story of of kind of all of these movements is you know if you're inside of them is progress blowback reaction progress, blowback, reaction. Uh, I, I'm so struck by by a passage in uh, Barack Obama's latest book about this, sort of like, you know, if you're on any kind of journey of, of trying to make something accepted in this country, you have to understand the principle of two steps forward, one step back. You know, that's how he describes it. Um, and I think he's describing that as it applies to all kinds of movements in the country. So, you know, I think that there's clearly a quest underway to create a kind of social and legal set of protections for trans people in the United States that in some ways resembles what the gay rights movement represents and in some ways is different because it's a, it's a different subject. So, so yeah, I mean, I think that's a reasonably, you know, understandable template for what's happening here. Yeah. I wanted to to have us touch on the, the state of uh, journalism, your thoughts on that, and, and the, how it's coupled with the political division in our country. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, where are we? How would you describe where we are and the, the role that journalism has played in getting us here? Your criticisms of, of journalism, perhaps. Well, that's the biggest subject on earth. <laughs> the... Uh... <laughs> The, 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 there, there is no one or easy answer to that question where I intersect with it is, you know, I think in my view, unenviable because, you know, I come at journalism, you know, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, when in some sense the, the die is cast and there's a huge amount of distrust in the media. And that is a burden. Those of us who are in journalism carry you know i once in a while i'm asked to give us a talk to journalism students and i think it's really important to be honest and say you inherit a country and a world where there is deep skepticism of the news media and that has to be the understood backdrop in which you operate and i want you this is what i say to understand that it's that it's not just your mission to report and report fairly. It's to understand that you may not be seen as fair and to think about 
how your journalistic process can bridge that gap and can actually make people have more faith in journalism. Because if you care about journalism, you need to be invested in Americans, Republicans, independents, Democrats, believing in journalism. Now, all that being said, there are forces in our journalistic ecosystem that are not invested in what I just described. They are partisan. And I don't think there's a better example of that than the lawsuit that has just been filed by Dominion Voting Systems, which we just covered on The Daily, that mm -hmm. shows that within Fox News, you have officials saying privately that the theories being promoted officially on air on the network are dubious, and yet they're going to still be promoted. And largely, according to the documents revealed in this lawsuit, because it's good for ratings. Now, if you're a journalist, the idea that you would mislead your audience for clicks and ratings is incomprehensible. Uh, so I think we have to acknowledge, and it's it's awkward to do because there are good people who work at Fox News. There are good journalists there that, you know, there are players in our media system who are not operating on the level. And, you know, this is something I think we have to call out because it's corrosive. It's part of the reason people don't have faith in almost anything, whether it's media or institutions. So that's a problem that we have to talk about. How does this end, this relationship with sort of siloed media? Um, does does it turn back on itself? Do we head toward more unity at some point? Does it get worse? Is there, for instance, a, a dystopian future? We talk maybe five years from now and, and we say, oh, man, remember back in 2023 when we had that discussion, we thought we thought we had seen the worst of it. <laughs> I mean, I don't see a ver I mean, I, I, I don't see a version where we 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 head toward unity because without a whole lot of work, uh, because we have entered a very, you know, kind of splintered media universe where people are watching and listening to that, which gives them in some cases and many cases what they want. And it is up to those of us who work at institutions that that don't see ourselves as giving people what they want, i.e. the New York Times, you know, to to stick to our guns. And and what, what, what do I mean by that? Stick to our guns. You know, that will mean challenging your listeners or your readers ideological assumptions. I think it's really important. I think that you don't necessarily do that as your job, but you can't shy from it, you know. I don't think it's a secret to suggest that, you know, many readers of the New York Times, based on where we are in our cosmopolitan, uh, you know, kind of location, have many readers uh, who are Democrats. And it is really important to not ever become an institution that sees itself as catering to people's political predilections. You know, our job is to tell stories and land wherever those stories need to land. You know, one of my favorite maxims about journalism comes from the last executive editor of the New York Times, Dean Bacay, who, who constantly exhorted us to enter rooms and stories with an open notebook. And by that he meant, don't have assumptions, don't have narratives in your head, follow the story where, where it goes. By the way, that's not always easy because everybody has assumptions. Mm -hmm. Everybody has some level of subjectivity. But if, but I'm constantly saying to myself, is your notebook 
open. And, and by the way, what that really means is like, is your heart open to the idea that this story is going to go someplace you didn't expect? Yeah. Last question. Um, on a lighter note, Michael, to end, The New Yorker attributed the success of The Daily in part to what it calls your idiosyncratic intonation. <laughs> now, Michael, I have to say, your intonation from day one, and I've listened to The Daily from day one uh, regularly, it sounds perfectly conversational to me and did from that very first day. But I've run into so many people, and I have to assume you have, who think that your intonation is unusual and right. dare I say, to, to some people, off-putting. Oh, sure. What's going on there? <laughs> all, I, all I can tell you is what I think is the real story of why I sound the way I do, which is that I, I, I had a grandfather who bullied me out of ever using any of these kind of, you know, interjections that people use when they don't know what to say. Your, your likes, your knows, and your ums. And, and he was, mm. you know, adamant that I was never to use those. And as a result, I sometimes pause in the middle of a thought and I never use anything to fill that gap. And so the pacing of the way I talk can seem a little funky. And I blame my late grandfather, you know, bless his soul. Right? He, he, <laughs> he did he did me he did he did right by teaching me this way. But as a result, it creates occasionally strange patterns of conversation. The other thing that I, that I do that I know some listeners of the show like and some do not is I react in real time with hmms and, and some other sounds to conversation, yes. which is, and I'm sure you know this, this is what you do when you're a journalist on the phone with a source because you yeah. are trying to keep that person feeling like you're invested in the conversation. And I just, we decided as a show that I was going to keep doing that even in audio. I'll tell you that we definitely cut some of those because I do it too much. And, and the producers and editors are like, oh, enough already. Cut, cut, cut. But, uh, but, but the reality is that we all have unique modes of speaking. And, and I decided that it was going to be okay to just be me, as they would say on Sesame Street, and, and hope people accepted me. Yeah, well, we love you being you, Michael Bobaro. Thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. And I'm really excited to be in Iowa in the next couple of days. We are excited to, to have you here in Iowa. Michael Balbaro, host of The Daily from The New York Times. Thank you, and uh, I know you have a busy day. Thank you for making room for us. Thank you. A conversation I had with Michael Barbaro recorded earlier today. Michael is coming to Iowa next week, Wednesday evening, March 8th, to speak at the Iowa Memorial Union on the University of Iowa campus. It's free, no tickets required, first come, first seated. Find out more by searching for University of Iowa Lectures with your favorite browser. Coming up after a break, a Des Moines public school instructor has discovered a new species. I'll talk with him after a short break. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from IPR News. Iowa Public Radio is your local NPR network station. Community-based and listener-supported, we connect you to the news, music, information, and ideas that shape your world every day. And we're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. How about being able to put this on your resume? Discoverer of a new species. 
Well, my next guest can make that claim. Greg Barrard is a marine biologist. He heads the Des Moines Public Schools Marine Biology Program on the Central Campus, where they use a full salt saltwater aquarium to teach students. Greg Barrard joins us uh, now. Welcome to the program, Greg. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. This involves the sea animal known as the Nautilus, and we are as non-marine biologists, most of us, familiar with the, the gorgeous cells, shells of these creatures. Uh, tell us the story of how a new species was discovered. Well, I think it started with that shell that you mentioned, because we originally started our research trying to figure out how many nautiluses were left because they were being overfished. And over the years, as we learned more and more, we started seeing that certain populations of the nautiluses just looked a little different. And, you know, we're trying to dig a little deeper and see, you know, are they just different patterns? Are they different species? And recently our team was able to provide enough evidence that shows that they are three new species that we used to think was just one. Yeah. By our team, you mean you and uh, students uh, in Des Moines Public Schools? In well, the, the students are, yeah, the students are certainly a part of the, the research. And um, when we do these projects, they, they learn about the Step one from writing the grant to logistics to publishing the paper. So the students, as well as uh, my my international research team that are around the country and around the world helping out. Yeah. So you'll have to enlighten us as to what qualifies as a new species, because, of course, dogs rarely look the same. They can be the same species. But when do you cross the line and say, this is a new species? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, and dogs are a good example because we don't only want to use what they look like anymore. Uh, we want to combine their morphology or their looks with their DNA profile, and that's what we were able to do. And when you do certain tests and look at the evolutionary history of that DNA, you can start to conclude that they are, in fact, different species. Does this new species you've discovered have a name? I assume a Latin name, if so. Yeah, the, the, the three new species actually are Nautilus vitiensis, which is an island in Fiji, uh, Nautilus vanuatuensis, named after Vanuatu in the Pacific where it's found, and then Nautilus samoaensis, named after where it's found in American Samoa. So each place was named after the location where they live. Yeah. T tell me about the moment and who was around when this discovery was made, when you had the perhaps the first inkling if not confirmed, that it was perhaps a new species or three new species? Yeah, so when you're, one of our research projects is using underwater video to look at these animals 2,000 feet below the ocean. And it's just one of those things that the more you look and the more sets of eyes you have on these animals, you can, you know, start to look at each other and like, okay, we've got something different there. And when we combine the, the DNA by taking these non-lethal tissue samples, then we can look at it on a computer screen and compare it. And then, you know, most of the time we're doing this through email, so it's a little odd. So the wows are typed out into an email to the group. Um, so, but once we knew that they were real, three new species, we were all really excited and, and overjoyed by it. Give us some background on the Nautilus, a fascinating creature. I understand uh, Nautiluses have been around. They even, uh, do they predate dinosaurs or from that era? Yeah, the, the Nautilus ancestry predates dinosaurs by a long shot. Um, they've been around for over 500 million years. 
And today they're only found in certain areas of the Pacific Ocean. And I like to refer to them as kind of the the most mysterious, widely known animal. Because, again, at the front, you mentioned their shell. Like, we know their shell. We talk about them in mathematics. There's gym equipment named after the Nautilus. But that living animal in there is still so mysterious to not only the world, but still us scientists. Most of us are familiar with the design of the outside of the shell, but I understand the inside is amazing. Tell us about that. Yeah, if you bisected the shell, the inside is made up of up to 36 little chambers. And as the Nautilus grows, it creates a new chamber and a new chamber. And these chambers help them become buoyant in the water. So kind of like a scuba diver, when scuba divers are going up and down, they can kind of regulate their buoyancy. Uh, Nautiluses do the same thing. We don't know how they do it, but we know that they do it. Yeah, and and such an excellent name for well, Captain Nemo's sub, right? <laughs> because <laughs> yes, exactly. They are they are they are just tremendous little submarines. And and, and let's talk talk about the propulsion of them because they have a fascinating system to get around on in the sea. Yeah, and it's it's perfect because whenever they move, they're flushing new oxygenated water over their gills. So it's very energy efficient and they're able to do it at constant speeds. They're not moving as fast as, you know, you would think a squid or an octopus because they don't have to. Um they're just living their life kind of in the slow lane 2000 feet below the surface. Yeah, and how do they survive? Are they are they predators? Do they eat plants or what, what how do they survive? That's that's a great question because, you know, as we're trying to protect Nautiluses, some simple questions like what do they eat, we really don't know yet. Uh, we know that they have certain things in their gut contents when, when other scientists have looked at them. We think they're scavengers, and we know that they have the one of the largest olfactory or smelling systems in the animal kingdom. So they can search out really small bits of prey in an area of the ocean that's very dark. And so that's probably been how they've been able to survive millions and millions of years of just being able to, being able to use their senses where other organisms really can't. Now, you have these saltwater aquariums there in Des Moines. Do you have nautiluses uh, there in captivity? Is it, are those the ones you were studying? Uh, the ones we were studying were in the field. Um, we used to have nautiluses in our lab here in Des Moines, Iowa, but all of our almost 150 different aquariums we have here are all made up of different tropical fish and invertebrates from different ecosystems in the world. Yeah, I understand keeping nautiluses alive in captivity can be challenging. Yeah, they require excellent water quality. They require really cold temperatures. They require darkness. Um, it's very difficult to keep them in captivity for long periods of time. If you've just joined us, uh, my guest is Greg Barard. He's a marine biologist, instructor, head of the Des Moines Public Schools Marine Biology Program uh, on the central campus. And uh, uh, the reason we're talking and finding out so much about these uh, fascinating sea creatures Nautilus is, uh, is uh, uh, was it three three new species discovered uh, by you and, and others there yep. in Des Moines, right? Okay. Yes, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the teaching that goes on there. When you have this, all these aquariums for different reasons, and you're teaching uh, marine biology there, what are your goals, and you have manifold goals, but your chief goals as an instructor to get across to high school students? I think the overarching goal is to just build confidence, confidence not just 
you know, and their ability to know everything about a, a certain organism, but confidence in maintaining aquariums, working with other students to troubleshoot problems, and being confident to do it on their own and kind of be confident to fail. It's kind of one of our mottos of success is great, but you really have to fail a lot to be successful um, in certain areas. And that's one of our things that we strive to, I, I strive to get them to fail in a way. <laughs> so, so, so fail, fail in terms of what? Do you have an example? Fail at what? Uh, fail in terms of, let's say the, the students are doing a, a water change and they've flooded the lab. Like that's a good teaching moment because we can talk about mm. how did this problem happen? We can squeegee up the water, you know, later on. So it's not a, a huge deal, but then we walk through the steps to not let it happen again. Yeah. Um, how many of your former students have gone on to become marine biologists in the country or around the world? Yeah, quite a few. Um, one of my students, the, the first year I arrived here in Des Moines, he recently completed his Ph.D. and he's now in Australia. We have students currently in undergrad and graduate programs focusing on marine biology, and we have almost dozens of students now currently working at zoos and aquariums around the country and around the world. So they're, they're utilizing this knowledge they've got here in Des Moines to bring it to other areas and, and follow their career path. I wonder when this lights up as a career in, in a student, and it may be after they took uh, your class and have moved on and you hear back from them. Do you know in the meantime uh, when you really connect with a student or when a student lights up and you say, ah, uh, a very potential marine biologist of the future there. Yeah, and it's it's kind of the, the small moments. It's not really the, the big observations in class of of what our lobster is doing. It's, it's kind of these smaller details of a student's able to find this little tiny snail that we might only see once a year because it is so small. And it's those moments that seem so trivial to some because it's just a little snail but when a student highlights it, when they walk in and they're excited to share about it with myself and the peers, that's when you can kind of see, oh, you know, you're, you're getting it. You're seeing those smaller things and how they connect to the larger things. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about in the, in the final moments here about the chief threats to the Nautilus and other sea life that you study. I, I suppose pollution and climate change have to be at the top of the list. Yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely overfishing of, of nautiluses and other things. And um, now we're just trying to scratch the surface of how things like ocean acidification, global warming, pollution um, can impact not just nautiluses, but their ecosystem that, you know, virtually is, is not being studied. And so we're trying to connect the whole kind of global change that's happening around us to this organism that, again, has been around for over 500 million years. And we're, we're trying to understand how they can be around for another 500 million years. Yeah. From your perspective as a marine biologist, broadly speaking for, for lay people, how is climate change impacting the world's oceans and its species? Die-off? I, I think it's, it's more complex than die-off. Certainly die-off, but it's causing evolution to kind of happen quicker. It's causing species to adapt quicker. So certainly there are populations that are going to decline, but with adaptation and with the process of natural selection, there will probably be other species that thrive. And I think it's the fact that we just don't know um, because we've never seen this happen before. So we're trying to predict, trying to record data and trying to understand a phenomenon that um, we don't know anything about really.
Yeah, but evolution can't keep up with the pace of change that humans have caused in this age of the, what is it called, the Anthropocene, right, that we, we're living in now. Correct, and, and we're also kind of human-centric because, you know, we we like our world the way it is. We like all the species on it, so we want to keep it that way, yet we're seeing these big changes that are causing populations to die out much quicker than they would be able to adapt normally to kind of slow warming temperatures over centuries and thousands of years. Yeah. We hear a lot of reports um, uh, about these islands of plastics floating in our oceans, the, the waste there. How big of a problem do you see that as? I think it's, it's again, kind of to the smaller things. I would be more concerned with being in, in a huge patch of plastic that you can't see because the plastic has broken down into what's called microplastics. And the prediction there is that as plastic breaks down smaller and smaller, then you have the smallest organisms in an ecosystem consuming that plastic. And since they're consuming that plastic and not their normal food, the potential for that bottom part of the food chain to really die off um, is, is real. And when that bottom part of the food chain is gone, the cascading effects upwards, you know, we don't know what will happen, but it's probably not going to be good. So we, we don't know what these little microplastic particles are doing to the smallest creatures in our oceans? I don't think we know enough. We know what could be happening. They are certainly eating them. But when we're getting to that kind of tipping point of how many microplastics does it take to wind up in the ocean to really alter a food web? And, you know, we can make predictions in certain small habitats and certain small ecosystems. Um, but until we see it happen somewhere, um, we really don't know how to calibrate our predictions to the right model. Yeah. Um, how do your students react to the environmental problems facing our oceans and our planet? Because they are of a unique generation um, being born into a, uh, an age when the planet is under grave threat. How do you teach that? How do you, for instance, keep students from, it's easy to be a doomsayer, isn't it? It, it is. And I, I, try to keep them away from that, but I also try to keep them away from what we've been doing for decades because it hasn't worked. And to give you, a, to highlight an example, students this year worked on projects to tackle overfishing. And their ideas were kind of what we'd already been doing that isn't working. And one student group came up with the idea to genetically modify fish so that they were too spicy for humans to eat, but not too spicy for sharks and things to eat. And while I don't think that's probably a good thing to do, I want them thinking about these ideas that nobody else has thought about so it builds discussion, it builds dialogue. And I think the more we talk, the more we listen to each other, we can get to a, a more viable solution than a bunch of spicy fish in the ocean. <laughs> uh, Greg Barard, how did you come to marine biology? Was there a moment uh, you can recall in your youth when the light went on? A hundred percent. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and I was watching a documentary when I was about four or five years old. And I turned to my dad and said, you know, I want to study squid and I want to be a marine biologist and get a Ph.D. And I'm sure I didn't know what that meant at the time. But ever since I was on this journey to become a marine biologist. Mm -hmm. And what about that squid just fascinated you as a kid and, and the other animals that have fascinated you ever since? I think it's just the, the how different all of these organisms are, but also how similar they are to us. So it's 
kind of the differences where we can look at a squid or look at a nautilus and be like, wow. But then we can also look at, well, they have to eat, they have to reproduce, they have to do these other things, just like humans do, and trying to figure out a way for all of us to kind of live on this planet Earth uh, and maybe a little better harmony. Yeah. And and is that, that the key, really, to helping raise awareness and save the planet, appreciating, appreciating the magnificence of sea creatures, all creatures on the planet, and and then <laughs> through that appreciation, wanting to save it? Yes. And that's what, you know, I, I use the Nautilus for. That's what I'm passionate about. And, you know, from that, I've learned so many other things about other organisms. And I hope my students um, and everyone really finds just that one animal that gets you hooked on the ocean because then you're going to start learning and caring about the whole entire ocean. Greg Barard, a marine biologist instructor at the Des Moines Public Schools, uh, head of their marine biology program on the central campus. Fascinating. Keep it up. A discoverer of new species. We'll, we'll look for other discoveries, perhaps, Greg. Thank you. Yes, definitely. Thank you again for having me. Sure thing. River to River today, produced by Danny Gear with help from Samantha McIntosh and Caitlin Troutman. Catherine Perkins is our executive producer. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.